Welcome to the Redeemer Coast podcast. Our prayer is that this message will inspire hope, build your faith, and encourage you in God's purposes for your life. starting a new series. What we're hoping to do over the next few months is going through a lot of the basics, the essentials to Christian life and the essentials of what uh, we believe as a church to just to get everyone really on the same page. We've done a few things on righteousness, love of God. We did ABCs of faith the last couple of weeks, so I think three of those podcasts or two of those podcasts are up. So we're starting with the ABCs of grace. And uh, probably of any belief or any um, doctrine or any understanding, grace is the fundamental one. If we don't understand grace and the application of grace in our life, we're just not getting it. And um, I, I remember a story of, about, told about C.S. Lewis when he was a professor, I think, at Oxford, and they were having a cross uh, cross religion conference at Oxford. He wasn't involved in it, um, but he stood at the back of one of the lecture theatres one day when they were talking about it, and they had come to the, somehow, I don't know how, but they had come to this, this point where they, re, they were finding it hard to differentiate between, or find the main difference between the world's major religions. And they saw C.S. Lewis up on, in the back of the auditorium, and so they asked, um, Professor Lewis, they said, what do you think is the difference between Christianity, Christianity and other religions? And he said, grace. And if you look at it, I think he nailed it. Because every other religion that I know of, that certainly involves a deity, is all about us earning a position before him. And and that is not the basis of Christianity. So much so that you have, you know, in, uh, uh, in some countries you have uh, people very devout, beautiful people, beautiful people, uh, seeking for God, wanting approval from God, who will literally roll across the country, roll, in an attempt to um, please God and to earn a position for God. Because that is the default position of us after the fall is that we felt, after Adam fell, we felt we needed to earn our place before God. And so these verses in 1 John, in John 1.14, it's interesting, whenever God mentions the same word a few times in a series of verses, we need to take note. So in John 1.14 it says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory the glory of the only begotten from the Father, that's the glory of Jesus, was full of grace and truth. His glory was full of grace and truth. Verse 16, for of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, which means it started with grace, it ends with grace, 
And in reality, everything between there is grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth are revealed in Jesus Christ. The law is given through Moses, but grace and truth is through Jesus Christ. And we'll get more into this in subsequent weeks, but basically what's that saying is the law was essentially man's, man's response to God. And it was given by God because man wanted to be judged. And some theologians have even thought that even the Ten Commandments were never God's perfect will for mankind. They are never his will. They were a response to people coming out of 400 years of slavery who had been judged by how many bricks they made and it was so indented in their mindset and their worldview that they had to earn their value and then they called for judges. They wanted judges to judges and all sorts of things and God said, well, if you insist on being judged and you think you can earn righteousness, then this is what you would have to do and the 10 commandments were given and then hundreds of other commandments and that was embedded so much in the mentality of, of us that you've got the situation where the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and said, I've obeyed the law, what more do I have to do? So Jesus sends him away to do more things. And the Bible says the purpose of that law is to realize that you cannot get to God by that law. And the church has got it wrong. The church has got it so wrong. There's a great book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey, and he actually starts saying that I'm really not even going to try and define faith, which annoys me because I'm a teacher. I like to define everything, you know. But he had a point. He said, I'm not going to define grace. He had a point because it's, it, it's, it's almost intangible, you know. It's like, but you know it when you see it. All right? And so he really, uh, in this book, goes through a whole bunch. Of, he says, I'm not going to try and define it just because that almost gets legalistic, but I'm going to tell you some stories. And so he tells a whole bunch of stories, and so we can get to feel grace, because grace is actually, it's more of an attitude. We will define it, but it's, it's more of a, it's an attitude and, and the action that's bestowed from that attitude. And the church has got it wrong. The church has got it so wrong. Um, and, and by the way, when we say the church, then we need to start saying we have. All right? So he tells this story. He says, I told a story in my, in my book, The Jesus I Never Knew, a true story that long afterwards still haunts me. He says, a prostitute came to me in wretched straits, homeless, sick, unable to buy food, even for her two-year-old daughter. And through sobs and tears, she told me that she had been renting her daughter, two years old, to people for kinky sex. She made more out of her daughter from an hour than she could earn in her own, uh, in, on her own in one night. And she had to do it, she said, to support her own drug habit. I could hardly bear hearing her sordid story. For one thing, it made me legally liable. I'm required to report cases of child abuse, and I had no idea what to say to this woman. At last, I asked her, has she ever thought of going to a church for help? And I will never forget the look of pure, naive shock that crossed her face. Church, she cried. Why would I ever go there? I already feel terrible about myself. They just make me feel worse. You know, the world reads us better than we read ourselves. If you asked 
nine out of ten people, what they thought a fundamental Christian was, a you know, fundamentalist Christian. And that, that expression annoys me because what I believe it means is that you believe the, the basics and the essentials of who Christ is and what he's made us. But you ask the world, and how many knows, they won't, they won't say forgiveness. They won't say grace. They won't say mercy. They won't say loving. They won't say understanding. But you ask them who Jesus is, they say grace, mercy, forgiveness, loving, understanding. And they read us like a book. Because we revert to those things. That's our default, is to revert to those things. We were named that from birth. We are raised that from birth. And, and, you know, there's all reasons why we have laws and all those things. We need those laws. But grace is about a relationship and the basis of the relationship that we have with our Heavenly Father, and it's not about laws or earning. But the name sticks. The name sticks. The, the name that Adam earned of a works-based relationship with God sticks. Um, my daughter got a cat for Christmas, and it was quite a few days before a name, even a week or two before a name was determined, and I think the name is Aragon, all right? And because Lynn and I struggled with uh, trying to, uh, that's from Lord of the Flies, from, isn't it? Lord of the Rings, yeah, right? <laughs> and, uh, and so it's Aragon, so we, we, Linda and I, like, it started off, we were just, it was Ara something, so we came up with Araldite, you know, and after we'd said Araldite a few times, well, the name kind of stuck. And the fact of the matter is we're, we're raised, we, we are raised to earn approval from our friends, to earn approval from the world, to earn approval at school, to earn approval from our parents, to earn approval that, that we, we, we are valued by what we do and what we can perform. And that was the mentality that the children of Israel had for 400 years. They were valued on how many bricks they could build and they lost the vision and the dream that God had for a relationship with Abraham, which was a bio-righteousness, a love relationship a friend relationship based on grace and faith. So, we're, so the church goes back into it. So, so, and the church, by church I mean us, all right? So much so that in Galatians 2 and Galatians 3, Paul rec recounts, so Paul preached, he says, in Acts 20, he says, I preached the gospel of grace. He called it the gospel of grace. He said, I preached the word of grace. And then he, he tells the Galatians, how, and it is, it is recounted in Acts as well, he tells them how, you know, this was such a threat to people that he had to, after 14 years, go down to Jerusalem and present this gospel of grace that, that in Christ there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave, circumcised or uncircumcised. Now, of course, when they meant circumcised, they meant good Christians. A little kid prayed once, Lord, make people good Christians and make the Good Christians, nice. Because good Christians are often tight, you know. And so Paul presented this gospel and they approved it and they, they sent him back so he could preach the gospel. But um, when Peter came, Peter spent a while in Antioch where Paul was based. And while he was there, and, and Paul was there, and this gospel was being preached, he was happy to eat with the Jews, and sorry, to eat with the Jews and the Gentiles to eat together. But of course, in the Jewish law, that's unclean. All right? And so he, but when some 
uh, of the circumcision, they called it of the circumcision. So that's Jews that had become Christians but believed that Christians still were going to be measured by the law. When they came to Antioch, the Bible, uh, Paul says that Peter separated himself from, from the Gentiles and would eat with, with the, uh, only with the Jews. And Paul said, I oppose him to his face. Now, wouldn't you have liked to have been there for that one? You reckon our Prime Minister and Deputy Prime Minister had an interesting conversation last week, you know, about who's right and who's righteous and who's not righteous. I think Paul and Peter had an interesting conversation about it. Posing to his face the hypocrisy of having been saved by grace now that you think somehow there's a separation between you and those other people are not as worthy as you because they're not circumcised or they eat, they like to eat Morton Bay bugs, you know, instead of lamb. You know, uh, go, why? Why have you ever thought, why? Why are you a prawn band? You know, like, like I, I, I just tend to think, and it's what Yancey says too, it's like maybe if you were able to do everything right in the law, but then there's this table of prawns. <laughs> no! Morton Bay, like, no! It's like there's no point other than like you want to be good by what you do, then I'm going to make it so hard. I said, there's some laws in there. They think, man, what, what are you talking about here? You, know, you want laws? We'll give you laws. That's not a law. This is a law. You, know, you can't eat more than my bugs. So the church and, and got to the stage that Paul said to the church in Galatians, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has bewitched you? You think you've been saved? You've been saved by grace, and now you're going to be perfected? by being good, all right? And so as a church, we, we develop, even the way we, we, talk, we talk about people as being good Christians and bad Christians. I don't know what a good Christian is. Do you know what a good, was that somehow, does that mean that that good Christian somehow, maybe there was less blood of Jesus shed for that person? He didn't need to, like, he didn't need to, to shed as much blood for that. And we revert, basically, we even define grace by the law. I can remember hearing from someone, a very well-known church in here, in Australia, they said, had a great message on grace. They said, grace is like the person who buys a racehorse, and that horse has never raced, but they see potential in that racehorse, so they put money out to buy for that racehorse. And I'm thinking, that's not grace. That's still a measure of value, based on how they fast they think that horse is going to run. We, we just backtrack. We, we have these expressions. I was, we're going to talk about, if we have time, about Homer and um, it's Gomer. <laughs> I was say Homer. Homer Simpson. You're like, oh, great. <laughs> uh, Gomer and Hosea, all right, and that wonderful story, which is a, a metaphor, a parable about us. And uh, so just to get familiar with the story, again, I decided to watch some children's cartoons over the last couple of days. And I'm amazed how some of these ca cartoons uh, justify the position that Gomer was in. Like one of them's got, you know, the father talking to Jose saying, you know, please marry my daughter. She couldn't help it that she was a prostitute. They took her away at an early age. And they go through this whole rationalization process. I'm sitting there thinking, you guys haven't got it. You haven't got the story. If, you, if you're somehow trying to justify or rationalize your sin, you don't understand sin. 
don't understand righteousness because what you're saying is actually I haven't sinned that bad. I do have a bit of rightness about me. We don't understand it. So the church has got it wrong, which means we get it wrong. It means our default is actually to slide back into a works-based understanding of religion and of a relationship with God. And if you track the history of the church, of course, it goes, you can see it. You can see it all through. And, and an illumination of grace lights up again and revival comes. The Reformation lights up again and revival comes. They understand the grace better, the grace of God. And now, and even for the last few years, there's been another awakening of what it means for the grace of God. And we've got it wrong, which means we, we need to look at ourselves because we revert to self-justification, self-righteousness, um, and trying to, even our sayings, like, we, like this saying, it's, it's in the media all the time, you deserve this. You know, it's like you go to this beauty therapy you know, thing, you know, say, this is what you deserve. It's like sometimes trying to rationalize spending that much money, you know, on it because you deserve it. Who knows you don't want, you don't want to go to God and say, Lord, give me what I deserve. You, you, that prayer is just not in there. Lord, I want what I deserve. You know, God doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us what we need. Love gives us what we need, not what we deserve. There's a whole behavior modification movement that came through in education decades ago, which was basically you just punish when they've done something wrong, reward when they do something right. What they found is they found that changes behavior, but it doesn't change the heart. And when those constraints are taken away, the behavior reverts to what the heart is. Because law will never change the heart, but grace, knowing the unconditional love of God, will change your heart. And so we're going to find grace, and again, because we know that Jesus carried around vines, expository dictionary of Greek New Testament words, so we'll revert to that. And uh, grace is defined as that which bestows pleasure, a friendly dis or the friendly disposition that leads to a kind act, that which, dispose, that which bestows pleasure, or a friendly disposition that leads to a kind act. The grace is used in a lot of contexts in the New Testament, which are really, they're called graces because, because of God's love for us, this happened, so that's called a grace. But the purest definition is, is that, Grace is God's kindly disposition to us. The fact that he likes us. The fact that he loves us. And we'll talk more just in a minute about there being two kinds of grace, the human kind and the God kind. But we're just trying to find, get a look at this word grace. And even what it's meant in our society has uh, a, a good indication of what it really means. So if someone walks, uh, someone graces us with their presence, the implication being is that we really don't deserve to be in their company. Do we? we don't deserve, but they've graced us. We use it sarcastically. Well, you're gracious with your presence, haven't you? If they think they're so high and mighty. But, you know, sometimes you do come across people who, who grace uh, others and really don't see themselves higher. I, we love it when our prime ministers get out there and walk in the street. And, you know, you used to see videos of John Howard in the morning just walking through Sydney or walking through Canberra. Some people going, g'day, John. Some people abusing him, and he didn't mind that he was prime minister. He, 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 and we would consider that a grace, all right? 
Or we say that someone's gracious if, if they've given undeservedly. You know, so they know this person doesn't deserve it, but they've been gracious and they've given to it. All right? In music, we have grace notes. All right? So uh, there's a score of music, and it's got the basic lines of music. This is the melody, this is the treble, this is the bass, and lots of stuff. And then they put these little notes up there. They're called grace notes, which really are part of the melody or part, not part of the harmony. But boy, so, so they don't really carry the tune at all. But when you add them, they're just beautiful. They're called grace notes. They're not a necessity. They're an addition. They don't deserve to be in there, but boy, they make it beautiful. So we call them grace notes. All right? So um, in the, at the time, the Greek at the time, uh, there were three goddesses of grace we've talked about before. They were, they were called the graces. And of course, you've got all the other Greek gods that have massive power and they do wonderful things. But the, but the three goddesses of grace were basically useless. There was basically nothing they could do except look pretty. And so one of them would dance, one of them would sing, and they'd all, you see pictures of them dancing around trees, and they're called the graces. Their gift was, they just look pretty. They just fought that. All right? And we see it. We, we love it. We love our stories. Our heart cries for grace. And we love it in the movies when there's grace. And one I've mentioned before, I mentioned again, but it's with Sandra Bullock in Miss Congeniality. You know, Miss Congeniality, that movie, she's an FBI, and you see her, she's not that attractive, her hair sticking up everywhere, and she's very blunt and ugly in her speech and swearing and all that sort of stuff, and she's got to become, as part of her role in uh, Miss Congeniality, is become a beauty contestant, you know. But of course, she stumbles and she falls all the time. And she's with another agent who's like, oh no, what have we got ourselves in here? She's got to, she's got to go in this beauty pageant, you know. And they, they go and they spend a few hours on it, you know, half a day. And she walks out of that, she walks out of that, uh, uh, she walks out of this um, airplane hangar where they've done her up. And she's just looking beautiful, you know. And, uh, of course, about 10 steps later, she trips on her high heels, if you've seen the movie. But uh, she, she works out that this other FBI agent, FBI agent is starting to fall in love with her because he's starting to treat her differently. And then when it clicks with her, she goes, I think you love me and you want to marry me. <laughs> and she nailed him. She nailed him, you know. And the thing with Grace is that how God feels about us is that he loves us and he wanted to marry us. Now, human grace, there's two kinds of grace, human grace. Human grace will, they'll often put on people what we're hoping, we project what we'd like them to be. You know, uh, what we're hoping they are. Uh, or it'll see that someone's beautiful and and get attracted to them, you know, and without really knowing who they are, you know. And that's a human grace. It's, it's still grace, but it's a very human grace because it is actually judging their value on their look, you know, or their singing ability. I, I noticed, uh, looking through school photos when I was a teenager, that there were uh, some people in those photos that I... Um, 
in the flesh, I thought they were attractive. They were very attractive. And when I'd see the photos afterwards, I think, well, well just, you know, on two dimensions, they're, they're not as attractive as that. And I was wondering why. And I think because when, there were other qualities about them that I found attractive, you know, and so they become attractive to you. It's a very human kind of grace. Um, I met Linda. The first time I met Linda, uh, I was... Uh, with uh, a church in Canberra, and we were we were um, we were looking after a group that were over on missions, and we walked up at Woden Plaza. We walked up the step. I walked up the steps with, with a pastor to Woden Plaza, and there was the team on the other side across Woden Plaza, like you know, 80 meters, 100 meters away, and there was one young lady there, and the golden hair flowed down there, and there was literally the sun actually was reflecting off the shop windows behind her. <laughs> and so it just glowed. And, and I fell head over heels in love uh, with a human kind of grace, you know what I mean? Just it's stunning, just stunning. As the uh, Maori kids in New Zealand reminded me when I was teaching New Zealand and Linda was, were engaged and Linda would come to have lunch with me over the fence and I was on playground duty. And I came back after one of these engagements. Linda was on one side of the fence, and because we were engaged, we weren't married, you understand? She's on one side of the fence, I'm on the other side of the fence, no, quite literally. And I come back to my class, and, uh, and there's all these, like, Maori girls giggling, you know? And they're giggling, 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 giggling. And uh, I said, well, what are you laughing at? They said, oh, we saw you at lunch, Mr. P. And I said, you saw me at lunch? They said, yep. I said, and she's too good for you. <laughs> So there's this human grace that, that's, that, 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 that you're attracted to that person and so you give them favor. You know, you show them favor and you court them and you take them out. But you know, deep down, we all have this fear that if they find out what we're really like, will they love us? If they find out what we've done, our thoughts, our values, Will they still love us? And of course, the wonderful thing is relationships develop, that if the love of God's working in that relationship, that they'll find out that and they'll still love you. And that transformation that comes with that is incredible. And the God kind of love is that before he actually fell in love with us, he knew what we were like. In Romans 5, it says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, he knew us. And while we were yet sinners, he loved us. And in the book of Hosea, God commands Hosea to go and marry a, a, a prostitute. Let's turn there. Hosea 3. And this is a picture, you, know, you often wonder, like I don't know that it would have been easy being married to Hosea anyway because he's like the mournful prophet. Like he's always going around going, woe is me, <laughs> woe is me, woe is me, woe is me. And then he travels and leaves his wife for months. So we, we don't like know the ins and outs. 
about this marriage and lots of regard, but we get this picture that God's trying to communicate, which is a picture of him and his love for us. The Lord said to me, go again. So he's already married uh, Homer. Gomer. <laughs> he's already married Gomer. You see, that guy got names. It's like Araldite. It's just there. It sticks with you. you know? He's already married Gomer, already knowing that she was a, probably a temple prostitute. All right? Now, you understand that they were worshipping Baal, and Baal, one of Baal's, um, one of Baal's uh, characteristics was fertility, and also, and that, and so he was supposedly blessed their, their their seasons and their fruit and the harvest and all that sort of stuff, and they considered that fertility. So they had temple prostitutes uh, in place so that they would go and, you know, supposedly, like very conveniently, you know, have with the temple prostitutes, and that was supposed to be re reflecting or pleasing to Baal so that their fruitfulness of their seasons and the harvest would be fruitful. He had other horrific things about him because he demanded, or well, they believed he demanded, Baal demanded you know, child sacrifices, and so they had a bronze, uh, a bronze um, idol with the hands out like that, and they put a furnace within it underneath it so they became red hot and they put babies as living sacrifices on it. So Baal was horrific and the worship of Baal was horrific. And so they think that, that Goma was a, a prostitute in the temple and God told Hosea to go and marry her. The image being Christ loving us even though knowing that we're sinners, right? The Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is beloved by her husband Yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. I don't know what's wrong with raisin cakes. <laughs> it's one of those things, really, we need some cultural context here, really. What's wrong with cajun cakes? Actually, what happened is that they pressed these raisin cakes and they were often part of a, an offering to the gods and it was all part of their fr frivolity, you know, when they're celebrating and having these orgies, raisin cakes were there. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and half of barley. Well, the interesting thing here, because the, what had happened is that he'd, he'd married her as a whore and for, it appears for a time the marriage was going fine and then out of neglect or whatever, she reverted back uh, to how she really saw herself. And in our new creation, in our faith, if we, if we haven't got the new creation embedded, God's love for us rewritten as to who we are and who we are in Christ, we always tend to revert back to how we saw ourselves. I always had, again, growing up as a teenager, you know, I had these profound thoughts as teenagers. As to, I wondered why good-looking girls would marry ugly boys or, or go out with ugly boys. Come on, guys. That question never... Oh, well, it always, it always confronted me. Yes, Solo, come on. Yeah, you've married up, I know. All right, because right? I needed a strategy. <laughs> All right? And you can tell I mastered it. <laughs> All right? And, and, but, but it wasn't just that. It was actually bad boys. You know, you ever wonder what good girls make bad boys? And I, I think it could be because they just thought that's the way they felt about themselves. That's who they saw themselves to be. And so they, they married. And so perhaps Goma still had that about her, and so she reverted and went back and went back and started uh, working as a prostitute again and whoring herself. 
And um, Hosea, of course, was distraught and left it for a while, but then God said, no, go and buy him back. The interesting thing about this is that the price he paid for her was not the standard price for a slave. Uh, it was like half the price, well, of just what was an average price for a slave. And I think that's what it's telling us is that even that's how ugly she had become and how destitute she had become. And I don't know how many years had taken part. And you would have known because he's gone looking for his wife. Now, that's an interesting conversation going into a slave market or into a whorehouse and say, I'm looking for my wife. Like, that would be an interesting conversation he had to have. And the Bible says God went looking for us. Looking for us. Looking for wife. So you know that that slave owner or that whorehouse owner was going to get as high as what he thought he could get for her because he wasn't looking for anyone else. He was looking for her. All right? And so how down was she? How destitute was she that even, even though he was desperate to, to win, to pay her back and probably would have paid anything, that this inflated price was still half of the average. So what did she look like? She was probably not earning her anything anymore. And he goes and buys her back. And then I said to her, you shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot nor shall you have a man, and so I will always be towards you. Now, we can mistake that and think that he's just putting his foot down now, but I don't think he's putting his foot down now. I think this is prophetic, all right, because he would have put his foot down before, and a lot of good that did, all right? All right the law actually, shame, guilt, condemnation, actually inspires sin and feeds sin, all right? But this is prophetic. Now that she had really had the taste of just how lost she was, that while she was yet a sinner, with the God kind of grace, that knowing, knowing what she was like, and yet he still loved her. That that transformation will change you. That sin becomes revolting. That this view that the world has of you is revolting. And like I said to Linda once, I've tasted raw oysters. I'm not going back. <laughs> All right? And it's like that, it was prophetic. Because the looks, the work, the, the law, the law, the work, self-righteousness will never change who you really are, will never change your identity. But to understand that God's grace towards us is not the human grace, is that he knows how filthy we've been. And yet he still chooses to love us and enjoys our presence. And then he prophesies then about the, son, the children of Israel being for a time without a king. And then he says, afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God, and David will be their king. Well, that David is the house of David. It's referring to Jesus. And David will be the king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and, and to his goodness in the last days. And that's a picture of us. But you know what happened? Is that too often as a church and as Christians, when we hear that story of, of Hosea, and I'm not going to ask you to put hands up, of Hosea or Goma, who did we identify with? Just ask yourself who, don't put your hand up. Who did you identify with? Because when I first heard it, I identified with Hosea. But we're not Hosea in that story. We're Goma. And perhaps if we're 
still identifying with Hosea, we've still got that little seed of self-righteousness within us. We don't really understand just how much, how deep his love for us, the God kind of grace, that he knows us and he still pursues us. Praise God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your goodness. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, you loved us. And while we were yet sinners, you died for us. And that empowers us. That empowers us to know that we can come boldly into your presence, to the throne of grace, to the mercy seat, where we find grace, where we find the transformation, the power we need to live this life. We thank you, Father, for your, that you called us out of darkness, that you saw us in sin, you pursued us, and even now when we fail, you still knew it was going to happen. No surprise to you, and yet you still choose to love us. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' mighty name. Thank you for listening. We trust that you've been encouraged by the message. Please consider leaving a review and subscribing to receive new content. For more information about Redeemer Coast, visit www.redeemercoast.com or find us on social media where our handles are at Redeemer Coast. Until next time.